and welcome to episode 126 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Sharon E. Flanders. Elizabeth. Cheryl. Daniel Illith, Bigger Bims. Elisa Montrose Roback. Ghost Donut. Debs Moss. Taylor Robinson. Amy Clawson. Samuel Herman. Molly Brooks. Laura Dimmer. Megan McCann. Tiffany Winters. Cassie Hiles. Ninja Pop-Tart. Abby Ashby. Kate Sharpock. Vanessa Eberly. Jenna Thorson. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We love you. We appreciate you every damn day. And before we go on to our film review this week, I just want to let everybody know that there are now cute little enamel pins that are available on our website. Please read the full description of each of them because there might be a version of it coming up that you might want to get instead. They're there, they're ready, they're available. And our film review this week. Our film review is Drag Me to Hell. Drag Me to Hell was released in 2009. It has 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. When loan officer Christine Brown refuses an old lady an extension on her loan, the lady places a curse of the Lamia upon Christine. Once cursed, Christine's life is turned into a living nightmare. What were your thoughts on this film? I actually really like this film for what it was. And I don't mean that in a detrimental way at all. I just mean it in that it is a horror film with a lot of sort of underlying comedy in it. Comedy that doesn't detract from the horror, but kind of just sets it, sets the tone of the movie quite well. Yeah, it's very over the top comedy. Like, as in, the comedy comes from it being over the top. Yes, yeah. It's not like it's full of one-liners and people trying to be funny. The comedy just comes from how far the director goes with the horror. And the director was Sam Raimi. And, and I, I, I'm not like a horror connoisseur, but apparently he's well known for that kind of style. So it should be unsurprising for people who are horror connoisseurs. But for me, who went to see this in the cinema many years ago and thought it was a very serious horror film, <laughs> I came out going, the fuck was that? So if you're looking for a really serious horror, this is not it. It's full of over-the-top, gory, ridiculous moments. And it's meant to be over the top and gory and ridiculous. So I guess that's probably the first thing we need to say about it. It also benefits from a very sort of coherent story, I think. Obviously, it is a little bit far-fetched because it is a horror film. But it is essentially the story of a bank teller that gets cursed by an old woman for not giving her an extension on her loan. And then we just see the chaotic, supernatural horror of being cursed and having a demon coming to get you. But I think there is a big lesson to be learned there. And that is that if you are a bank teller whose job it is to give out loans, you never deny a loan to an old babushka who rocks up with her headscarf on and her one dodgy eye because that bitch is going to curse you. She should have known that before she didn't give her a loan. Like you would know by looking at that lady that that lady had some serious powers. Like 100%. So lesson, that is the lesson from this episode. If anybody is in charge of loans and an old lady comes in, give her the damn loan because it's not worth it to not give it to her. I also like this because it's been the first horror movie that we've watched for a couple of weeks that has made me jump. And it was full of really predictable jump scares that main, most of the time featured this old woman. And every time she was part of a jump scare, I jumped 
on my skin. And I knew it was coming, but it got me every single time. But she is very scary, though. She's a very scary character. She's not like a, a supernatural being. She's a genuine old woman, but just has the power to curse people. There is a, an absolutely horrific moment in the very beginning where the little old lady and uh, Christine have this bizarre physical fight in a parking lot. And the old lady's teeth fall out, her false teeth. And she gums Christine in the face as in she tries to bite her with no teeth and she's just gumming her face. And it is, I think that for me was the most traumatic bit of the entire film. There was, there was after that, nothing could faze me except for one bit, which we'll talk about in a second. But it, it yeah, oh, oh, give me the heebie-jeebies. I can understand that because it's really unnerving and I can't think of another film where I've seen someone gum someone like that before. It's very <laughs> weird. But then that kind of fits, that's the kind of comedy that we're talking about. So it's, it's just over the top, which makes you laugh. So it, rather than it being like slapstick comedy or like one-liners, it is just over the top in the way that it does violence, gore and fight scenes. Because that fight scene in the underground car park was the thing that made me go, oh, this is Sam Raimi. Okay. Yes. Literally, Dan was like, wait a second. Who directed this film? And I was like, oh, it was Sam Raimi. I just think, regardless of the fact that it is a comedy horror film, you know, the life lesson of always give all babushkas alone is very important for everybody. And the second life lesson is if you hurt animals, you deserve every single bit of pain, torture and bad luck that comes your way. You're going to get yours, basically. Yeah, you are. You're you're going to and you deserve it. You know what? You absolutely deserve it. And I kind of feel like the film set up for us to not want Christine (laughs) <laughs> to uh to to you know figure out this whole curse situation and a psychic vaguely tells her that an animal sacrifice might help her get rid of the curse that the old lady has put on her so she immediately decides to sacrifice her tiny kitten and you don't see it on screen but you see the aftermath and i thought you know what christine that's that's me and you done babe you, you don't give loans to old ladies and you sacrifice your own kitten on a vague idea that it might stop a goat demon from coming to get you so you deserve everything that you get and also while on the subject of animals the goat that they brought in for a sacrifice later on turned into the devil and survived so you know (laughs) yeah and that's it it's just i mean this is a bizarre film review because it's a very bizarre film there is no it's this one of the strangest films i've seen in a very long time and i'd forgotten just how strange it was because i saw when it first came out back in 2009 and like i said thinking it was going to be a really serious horror film then i was like oh my god that was so weird is it something for a diehard horror fan to like keep you up at night and sleep with the lights on? Absolutely not. No way. But is it a good laugh? Yeah, it is. There's some bits of it that are really funny. I think horror fans will enjoy it for sure because there's there's enough to keep you... Like the story is coherent. It's not weird in like an off-the-wall way. It's just so over the top that it's amusing. There was um, some Matt from Full Movie Podcast sent us a message and I think he left a comment as well on Facebook saying that there is a theory like a fan theory, this isn't from Sam Raimi, that the story was kind of an allegory for the main character's eating disorder. It's an interesting theory. And you and I, when we were watching it, you could kind of see those elements of it. Do I think it's a purposeful theory or do I think it's a purposeful under undertone for the film? No. But if you are re-watching it through that lens, it is an interesting way to re-watch it and, and see it as something completely different. So uh, what do you give this bizarre film out of five? 
I give this a three and a half out of five because I have remembered exactly what I scored it on Letterboxd this week. <laughs> so I'm sticking with it. So three and a half out of five for me is better than average. And I'd definitely watch it again in, in like a couple of months time. I need I need enough time to forget it. Uh, I'm definitely going to score it a three as well. It's it is what it is. It's it three and a half. <laughs> well, I'm giving it a three two. apparently. It is a it's it's just a silly horror film. It's completely over the top. It's definitely entertaining to watch, but don't watch it expecting some sort of cerebral film that's going to keep you up at night because it's just not that kind of film, but definitely enjoyable. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, our story this week is a story in two stories. It's two different stories. It's two stories. It's a story in two stories. <laughs> I was going to say it's a story of two halves and then I was like, well, it isn't really, is it? It has got an overriding theme. Don't worry. It's not just two random stories together. But can you take a guess at what our first story might be about? I'm saying goat demons. Bizarrely, no. Although I did find a really strange first person account of meeting like a goat man in the woods and it wasn't the Chronicles of Narnia. I didn't like mix up kind of a a storybook with a first person encounter but today we are going to talk about a curse as our first story and what do you think the most famous curse in the world might be i think it's benfica never winning the european cup since 1960 because they got cursed by a gypsy woman oh i thought it was mayo never winning the (laughs) the all ireland that so many people that's going to go away over their heads and i'm really sorry but i think for me the most the curse that kind of you learn about as a child is the curse of Tutankhamun. And I think it's one of those curses that everybody knows about. But we're going to do a small deep dive into Tutankhamun before we discover another story about Egypt. So this is what I mean about an episode in two halves, two parts, two stories. Are you ready? No. Today, many people believe that curses are a thing of fairy tales or folklore or the ancient history of far-flung places. And there is one curse that almost everyone listening will have heard of, and that is the curse of Tutankhamun's tomb. It was the 26th of November 1922, and Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon stood in a dark corridor. They had found it. The tomb of the Lost Boy King. There were signs of forced entry on the outer door, So they predicted that the tomb would have been ransacked, perhaps more than once, by grave robbers desperate to loot the buried treasure. The men knew that thieves and grave robbers were the plague of modern archaeology, and it was look of the draw whether a discovery would be unsullied or whether it would be completely useless. Carter forced a hole in the left-hand corner of the doorway and pushed a small candle inside. He later wrote of the experience... Presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues and gold. Everywhere the glint of gold. For a moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the other standing by, I was struck dumb. When Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, Can you see anything? It was all I could do to get the words out. Yes. Wonderful things. When they eventually entered the chamber and looked around, they could see that everything was intact. But still it meant nothing, because on the north wall of the chamber was another door 
which was flanked by two statues of Tutankhamun. It was his burial chamber, and there was evidence that it too had been infiltrated by grave robbers. Later that night, unable to bear the suspense, Carter and Carnarvon returned to the burial chamber, clambered through the hole that was left by the robbers and into Tutankhamun's final resting place. It was fully and completely intact. The explorers were overjoyed. They had found the tomb of the boy king. But why had the grave robbers entered and not taken a single thing? In February 1923, the burial chamber was officially opened after an immense period of labour and its excavation began. It closed in late February to allow for everyone to take a break. And it seems that it was on this break that the curse was born. Carnarvon and his daughter spent a few days at Ashwan, where he was bitten on the cheek by a mosquito. Soon after his return to the Valley of the Kings, he sliced the bite open with his razor while shaving. Blood poisoning set in, and he died on the 5th of April 1923. And at the same time, all of the lights in Cairo went out. Prior to his death, Carnarvon signed an exclusive deal with the Times newspaper and would only speak to them officially, so other newspapers resorted to printing rumour and gossip. What followed Carnarvon's death was a debate about the dead as an easy target. Would Carnarvon had been happy if someone had targeted and dug up a British monarch? And was what they had done genuinely dangerous? Victorian literature had been awash with tales of magical and mystical ancient Egyptians. The novelist Marie Corelli had literally said, I cannot but think that some risks are run by breaking into the last rest of a king of Egypt whose tomb is specifically and solemnly guarded and robbing him of his possessions. Arthur Conan Doyle, who famously believed and sought to prove the existence of the paranormal, asserted to the American press that the curse of the tomb was real and was likely to be the result of ancient elemental spirits. But who else was rumoured to have succumbed to the curse of the boy king? Sir Bruce Ingham was given a gift by Howard Carter. It was a paperweight that contained a mummified hand that wore a bracelet. Ingham's house burned to the ground shortly after he received the gift and when he attempted to rebuild it, it was washed away in a flood. George J. Goud was a railroad executive who visited the tomb and became ill and died almost immediately. Aubrey Herbert, half-brother to Lord Carnarvon, died five months after his brother and many believed it was because of the curse. Hugh Evelyn White took his own life in 1924, a year after excavating the site, and left a message that allegedly read... I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. Aaron Ember, the American Egyptologist, was friends with many who were present for the opening of the tomb and died in a house fire. His wife had encouraged him to save a manuscript that he was working on and he perished as a result. The manuscript? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Richard Bethel, Carnarvon's secretary, was found dead in his home having been smothered. 
There was a belief that he had been under the curse in the months prior, as there were a series of mysterious fires in his home. His home that was full of relics from the tomb. Sir Archibald Douglas Reed x-rayed the mummy and died three days later. James Henry Breasted returned to his home after the opening of the tomb and found that his pet bird had been eaten by a cobra, which was still sitting coiled in the cage. The cobra was the symbol of the Egyptian royalty. But Howard Carter, the man who physically opened the tomb and removed the boy king's mummy, never did suffer as a result. The thing about the curse of King Tutankhamun is that it seemed to strike at exactly the right time. It's clear that the links to the curse are tenuous at best, and that the deaths of people who were only vaguely associated with the tomb were credited to the curse, regardless of how they died or how long after the curse it was. The tomb was discovered right in a period of time where there was an increased societal interest in the occult and in death rituals, and questions were rightly being raised about the efficacy of plundering the resting places of ancient people. The ancient Egyptians did indeed write curses on the walls of their tombs, but the curses were a security system, a means to hopefully deter grave robbers, and it wasn't just the Egyptians who did it. Even Shakespeare has a curse on his grave that reads, Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. This curse story freaked me out so much when I was a kid. Because I think if you bear in mind that I was quite a sheltered child in terms of I wasn't exposed to lots of scary things, and being a massive history nerd, I I definitely had an Egyptian phase and I read plenty of Osborne books and various other things that were linked to this curse. Not this curse, but to the Tutankhamun stuff. And then they all had a passage about the curse. And I'm pretty sure there's like a choose your own adventure thing to do with that as well. I'm not sure if you want to tell people about your fear of other curses when you were growing up. Because I I kind of think you being afraid of curses (laughs) has been a theme in your life. I've always had an overactive imagination, so it's hardly surprising so it didn't take a lot. Of, it only take me took me reading about this curse to be scared of it. And then I was when we were watching the film. <laughs> I was telling Emma that I had a, a real sort of fear of being cursed by these traveller women that were in our town giving out selling heather, which is is something travellers do. There was just basically in in a sort of twelve year old's mind there was this big rumour about these you know that a certain someone knew someone that got cursed by these ladies for not taking the heather and so I got I it built up so much in my mind that I used to if I saw them in the street I used to go completely different routes I didn't even have to get into that habit of being offered the heather and either like panicking and 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 being conned out of money for it or like saying no and then thinking I was getting cursed I just avoided the situation so I used to walk the long way around the town to make sure that I didn't encounter them I think that's definitely a good thing too because I can imagine you saying yes every time and just having a house full of heather like your wardrobe was full of heather your mum's kitchen cabinets you'd open them and just heather would come out and they'd be like please Dan stop buying heather (laughs) that definitely would have happened (laughs) but I was the same with this story though of Tutankhamun like I loved it when I was a kid I just was obsessed but I didn't really know what the curse was or who had been impacted by the curse I just knew in my head in some sort of Indiana Jones way these explorers had found 
the tomb. They'd opened it and bad things had happened. And it was only when I was researching this story that I realised that (laughs) it's so tenuous. Like anybody who is remotely associated with the tomb who died, the newspapers would be like, oh, there's that curse again. When actually it wasn't really about that at all. And I did read an account where people believe it was Howard Carter that started the rumour because he didn't want anybody else trying to get in. And that makes perfect sense. They had found this incredible tomb that was incredibly preserved. Of course, he wouldn't want anybody else going in. So he was like, oh shit, what'll we do? Tell everybody it's cursed. Tell everybody you'll die if you go near it, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, I can see that. But this is me you're talking to. So it's definitely cursed. (laughs) But and I just feel like the Egyptians had, like many cultures and civilizations, had a very sort of in-depth understanding of what they thought the afterlife was like. And so much of that was pinned on the way that they were buried and what they were buried with and how the body was prepared and the ceremonies and the sacraments that went with them. If you, you know, if you think about it like that, and we don't really know what happens after you die. <laughs> so if you start messing around with that stuff... I mean, it's it's more likely that you're going to get cursed. Not, not cursed, but some there's going to be consequences to your actions. Well, I think death rituals are really important. And just because another culture or community's death ritual is different doesn't mean that it's any less than what yours is, if that makes sense. And I And I do wonder, like, because prior to the opening of the tomb, they had these shows in primarily in London because it was the big city, these sort of bizarre cabarets where they would unwrap real mummies on stage in front of people in some sort of horror show. And people's ideas were starting to change where they were like, is this okay? Because I feel like this might not be okay. You know, and prior to that, in the Victorian era, it was all about the the big show and the big spectacle. But you're only talking about a hun- literally a hundred years before this, Burke and Hare were tried for grave robbing and now people were celebrating what is essentially grave robbing. And it was very, it was very complex for people, I think, you know, and then people were really starting to question it. And I guess as well as that, the newspapers being pissed off with Carnarvon were like, well, fuck you. We're going to say all these awful things about you because you won't give us a story. There's a lot, there's the thing about this story is there is a, a very clear human element to it, right? So there's all those things that you said in that. You know, it's Carter trying to protect his find. It's the newspaper spreading rumours because they don't like a certain guy because he went with exclusive rights. But there's also the fundamental aspect to this, which is that they disturbed and were very highly disrespectful to a place of rest. I'm very torn on my position on this because I feel like there's obviously some massive historical value to into in looking at inside the, the pyramids and stuff like that. But also, they were people once... And it's like that, like you said, like Burke and Hare were tried and rightfully so. Oh yeah, can I just say that the comparison Bur- with Burke and Hare might not be a very good one because they literally murdered people. But they, you know, grave robbing was a big thing a hundred years previously and it, people made a lot of money from it and then they went a step further and started murdering people. Not, not, not good, not good at all. But you're completely right. Like these pharaohs and these, what would be the equivalent of nobility in Egyptian society, they were people. And they took their death rituals very seriously. They even mummified their cats, which I am here for because <laughs> the cats were revered. So there you go. And the thing is, you can't like, yes, you can you can prove what happens to a physical body when you die, right? But nobody's got proof of what happens to your spirit, right? So if if their spirit has gone to 
the place that name I've completely forgotten because my Egyptology skills are rough at the moment, but that that the afterlife and you start messing around with stuff. Who knows? Like, I cannot see the logic of thinking, oh, look, here's a mummified hand. Let me put it in plastic and send it to you as a paperweight. Like, there was a real thing about oddities around a certain class of individuals at this time, so I get it. But at the same time, man, oh, can you imagine what would happen if someone sent me a mummified hand? Oh, my God. You'd, you'd, you'd <laughs> dissolve. You'd melt into a puddle. But you're right. There was such a thing of oddities. People loved oddities. Oh, I could, I could talk about oddities forever because I am fascinated by that culture at the time of gifting oddities where people were like oh i found this three-headed frog i'm going to pickle it in a jar and gift it to my friend so they can display it and that somehow symbolizes your class in society it's so weird but before we rant anymore because this is getting a bit ranty the deaths that are allegedly associated <laughs> with the curse of tutankhamun what are your thoughts do you think they are really can they be attributed to the curse or do you think it's more so the uh, kind of macabre wonder of associating them with this curse. I think Lord Carnarvon's death is mysterious and I feel like the one with the mummified hand is quite bizarre. All of the deaths that are linked to it are quite spectacular. That's the terrible choice of words, but you know what I mean? They're quite unexpected or something happening that was cut a life short or very dramatic. So I can see why they were linked. Some of them are very, very tenuous, tenuous even, but Lord Carnarvon's death is mysterious. and Why do you think his death is mysterious above all the others? Because of the info that we get about it. It's very sort of... <laughs> he got bitten by a mosquito, cut it when he was shaven and got ill and died, pretty much. Yeah, and that is, that is pretty much what happened. But he was a very sick man. Ah. Yeah, so prior to that, he had had some sort of accident and had never really fully recovered from it. And he was in his late 50s, I think. And um, I read, uh, I read there's, there's kind of a theory that there was some sort of bacteria in the tomb that was released when they opened the seal that caused like lung issues and stuff. And while scientists kind of said, you know, yeah, it's, it's possible that that could happen. The other side of it is they also said it's probably more dangerous to just be in Egypt mm. as an English person because they had different insects, they had different diseases, they had a completely different climate. So really, that was more of a risk than opening a tomb and some sort of, you know, bacteria coming out. So his death, while it was sudden, it wasn't actually that mysterious because his body just wasn't strong enough to fight the infection, apparently. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I'd forgotten about the whole bacteria theory as well because that does, to my mind, like somewhere that's been sealed shut, an airtight for like thousands of years. It's probably not going to be the healthiest of air to be breathing in, is it really? Regardless of what it is. And obviously any bacteria that's in the tomb is not intentional. That's not what the pharaohs, the pharaohs didn't line the tomb with bacteria to stop them from. No, and there were people who suggested that, oh, did they put bacteria in there as like some sort of chemical weapon? An actual like biological warfare type curse. And scientists were like, no, no, they were they were an advanced society, but they weren't that advanced. Like they didn't have that kind of knowledge. Absolutely not. No way. If it happened, it happened by accident. Yeah, that, that's fair. But what about the the guy with the mummified hand? I'm I'm stuck on this mummified hand. Like for me, that just that sounds like you know Carter often with some kind of mystical. Are you thinking of that Treehouse of Horror episode in The Simpsons where they get the monkey hand? Because that is what I. That's yeah, all kind I'm thinking of. About. But it just seems very sort of they're they're two very dramatic things, and it may just have been like two very explainable things like he built the house on the floodplain so yeah. yes it did get washed away and the fire just ha- fires happened more in the past didn't they because you know we were talking about buildings that had 
had a lot of wood and not very particularly high safety standards and also lots of naked flame often. So it's just a mumfied... I can't get over the mumfied hand. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, for me, that is cursed. <laughs> in there, there, so there was a, a legend that on the mummified hand was a bracelet and on the bracelet was engraved the words, uh, cursed is he who moves my bones, right? And I was like, that's really interesting because that's what Shakespeare's <laughs> grave says. So I don't think this... I don't think that part of it is true. And presumably not in English, right? Yeah, and that's also what I thought. I was like, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have written it in English either. So no, I just didn't include that bit because it just was, it clearly was an afterthought that somebody added. But can I just, can I just add my last thing on the mummified hand? Because this is, this is a sticking point for me and I'm struggling with this because it is freaking me out. Cursed or not, at some point that's been removed from a body, right? You don't just get a hand. So that's also either very disrespectful if it's Carter cutting up mummies to give gifts to his friends or why was it done in the first place I, I don't know was that rhetorical or yeah no it's a question an I want an oh, answer no, I don't know sorry no. I don't have an answer because what if it was like done as like some kind of warning don't. what if that is actually a cursed item so it's got nothing to do with the tomb but the region the reason it was a chopped off hand and mummified in the first place was because it was a cursed item. If if it's true that these people who excavated the tomb just gave random trinkets from the tomb as gifts. I mean, the mummified hand was a paperweight. That is something you use like regularly in your office. Why would you want a mummified hand paperweight? But like genuinely, there must be trinkets from Tutankhamun's tomb everywhere. Like, I mean, not not everywhere, not in your kitchen. You know what I mean? But like, there yeah, better not be. <laughs> there must be some in circulation because they gave it to people as gifts and we're like, oh, look, look what I, I picked up from the tomb in Egypt that I excavated that was thousands of years old that was from a lost king. I mean, it's just wild. But can I just say before we before we go on to the next story, the wife who told her husband to go back in and get the manuscript. <laughs> that's chaotic energy. Uh, like either that manuscript was the best manuscript that's ever been written or she really hated her husband. I don't know which one it is. I guess, I guess like, but the thing is, if if that's a payday for him, and this is back in the day of before the cloud, so you can back up your documents. If it if it burns in a fire, you got to start from scratch because you haven't got all your notes are in there, everything's in there. You got to start from scratch, and if that is your big payday, I can see why. She sent him back in. She was like looking at him, thinking about the dollar signs. She's she, like, go well, go back, go back and get the manuscript. I get it. I get it. She's looking. At, she's watching her house burn. She's thinking we got we're gonna have to buy a new house at some point. That could pay for part of the house or all the house. I don't know how much you got for a book back in those days. I really hope that you threw the manuscript out the window before you perished, just just so she had something. You know that she had something <laughs> that she could say. Oh well, my husband died. Kind of my fault, but at least the manuscript survived. So are you ready for the next part of the story? Yeah. So the next part of the story I'm really excited about. It isn't about Tutankhamun, but it is about Egypt and it is about excavating particular sites. Now, I need to give a massive shout out to Tremaine Darnell, who messaged me this on Instagram ages ago and said, hey, this story is incredible. You need to read it. And it is incredible. And I'm really excited because I'm going to tell you the story of Dorothy Edie. Ah, yeah, her. Never heard of her. (laughs) Our brains are complex and mysterious organs. A slight chemical imbalance can cause crippling mental illness. It has the power to trick us into believing that a pile of clothes on a chair in the corner of your room is actually a demon coming to take you away. 
The human brain has the power to see music as colours, to see numbers as shapes, and to see patterns when maybe patterns don't exist. Perhaps that explains how and why curses can be seen as very powerful. Your brain can make you remember literally every second of your life, like Rebecca Sharrock, who even remembers being born because she has a rare neurological condition. Or your brain can make you forget in a desperate act of self-preservation. There are numerous strange phenomena that can happen after a serious brain injury, like foreign accent syndrome, or like Orlando Serral, you could remember the day of the week and the weather from any given date in your history. Dorothy Eady possessed one such strange brain power. But hers raised more questions than answers. Dorothy Eady was born in London in 1904 to Irish parents. The family were unremarkable and were lower middle class, so they got by fine in life. But it all started when Dorothy was three. She fell headfirst down a flight of stairs and was found unconscious in a crumpled heap on the bottom. There are varying stories as to what happened next, but some report that Dorothy was pronounced dead, but was revived, and others say that she was simply knocked unconscious. According to Encyclopedia.com, Dorothy was pronounced dead by a physician, and when he returned an hour later to help prepare the body, Dorothy was sitting up in bed playing with her toys, having suddenly and inexplicably revived. But something was different when Dorothy woke up. For all intents and purposes, she was fine. Physically and miraculously, she seemed to have awoken unscathed from the accident. That was until she started to speak. When Dorothy began to speak, she spoke with an accent that was unlike anything her family had heard before, or indeed unlike anything Dorothy would have heard before. It's important to note that while rare, foreign accent syndrome does happen. It's a result of trauma to the brain which changes the speech pattern and can make the patient sound as though they have suddenly adopted a different accent. But it was what Dorothy actually said that was even stranger. Because when she awoke... She looked around and said, When are you taking me home? Her parents were alarmed by the accent, but relieved that Dorothy seemed otherwise fine. When they explained to Dorothy that she was home, she looked around confused and said, But this is not my home. Please take me home. Dorothy began to dream of a place that was hot and a building with huge columns. But Dorothy couldn't explain where this home was. And when she started school, she was an object of curiosity for the other children because of her odd way of speaking. A year after the accident, Dorothy visited the British Museum with her parents, and ambled along hand-in-hand with her mother, not really taking in the exhibits that she was seeing. Remember, she was only four years old at this time, When they reached the Egyptian exhibit of the British Museum, Dorothy completely lost it. She ran around breathless, almost as though she was in a frenzy. She tried to kiss the feet of statues and cried out that these were her people. 
Her mother and father grew increasingly alarmed and tried to calm her down, but she would wriggle out of their grip, joyously squeaking at each new sight. And then she stopped dead, in front of a grainy black and white photograph. She gasped and then gulped in air, tears streaming down her face. In the photo was a huge columned building. The Temple of Seti I, the father of Ramses the Great. This is my home, she cried, pointing to the photo and looking pleadingly at her parents. This is my home. But where are the gardens? Where are the trees? The oddness became even more alarming when Dorothy began to study religion in school. Her parents were asked to keep her away from Sunday school because Dorothy continuously compared and contrasted Christianity to a long-lost ancient Egyptian religion. She was expelled from a Dulwich girls' school because she refused to sing a hymn that talked of cursing the Egyptians. A spirited and confrontational young girl might not have been unusual, but what was unusual was that her information about this ancient religion was really accurate. Dorothy had obviously never been to Egypt. The television hadn't been invented yet, and her reading ability would have been far too limited to absorb the wealth of knowledge she had somehow accumulated. And through this time, Dorothy continued to dream of a pillared abode and talk about going home. She became completely obsessed with ancient Egypt and spent as much time as she could in the museum studying the exhibits and trying to learn as much as possible about what she believed were her people. She caught the eye of prominent Egyptologist E.A. Wallace, who encouraged her to study hieroglyphics. He was impressed by her deep passion and knowledge of ancient Egypt. But outside of these circles, trouble was brewing. Dorothy couldn't settle in school. Her continuous discussion of ancient religions frightened the pious of the religious schools that she attended. She was eventually asked not to return to Catholic Mass after she told some of the congregation that she liked Mass because it reminded her of her old religion. While it may seem like an extreme reaction to perhaps eccentric behaviour, Christianity and traditional values were incredibly important in society at that time, and perhaps even more so for Irish parents, whose reputation in the community would have been incredibly important to them. Things worsened when Dorothy began to tell her parents exactly what her role had been in her life in Egypt. She was adamant that she had been a priestess of Isis in the Temple of Seti I at Abydos, She told her parents that she had eaten the raw turkey with seti. Eating the raw turkey was an ancient way of describing illicit sex and would have later been widely replaced with the phrase eating the forbidden fruit. She became pregnant with seti's child and as sex was forbidden for a priestess, she was ordered to stand trial. The punishment for her crime would have been a public execution, but instead she chose to die by her own hand. Dorothy's parents sent her to an asylum, terrified of the apparent rantings of their daughter. They had no understanding of what was happening to her and were frightened that her behaviour and continued talk of these things would ostracise both her and them. What followed were numerous incarcerations that seemed to do nothing of benefit for Dorothy. 
By this point, she had very little formal education. And in between admissions, she spent her time in the British Museum studying as much as she could. It seems that while the outside world thought Dorothy was at the very least wildly eccentric and at the worst very mentally unwell, those that worked in the realm of studying ancient Egypt genuinely respected her. She landed a very good job working for an Egyptian magazine that was printed in London and championed Egyptian nationalism. It was during this time that she met an Egyptian man named Imam Abdel Megwid and her lifetime dream and desire to return home was finally realised. She moved to Egypt in 1931 at the age of 27. Dorothy married Megwid and had a son who she named Seti. But all was not well. It would be lovely to say that Dorothy had found her spiritual home and lived happily ever after. But just as she was odd in England, she was also odd in Egypt. She was a white woman who landed in Egypt, in Cairo, and told everyone who would listen that she had actually been a 14-year-old priestess who had committed suicide after becoming pregnant with the pharaoh's child. Two years after she was married, Dorothy was divorced, but she took it in her stride. She felt it in her bones that she was home and had no intention of leaving Egypt. She remained in Cairo and landed another great job at the Department of Antiquities. The local people were equally frightened of her and respected her. She would spend nights alone inside the Great Pyramid of Giza and would leave offerings at the feet of the Sphinx. She had no desire to try and hide or dilute her actions and was open and honest about her beliefs about her past life. She adopted the name Amseti, which means Mother of Seti in Arabic. It would be easy to listen to this story and make the assumption that Dorothy was just an eccentric woman with an obsession for Egypt. But during her tenure working at the Department of Antiquities, she was actually widely renowned for her knowledge and her abilities. She wrote numerous books and articles, which are still highly respected to this day. She was regularly consulted on theories about day-to-day life in ancient Egypt, and her contributions turned out to be highly accurate. When she was in her 50s, she was offered the opportunity to work on the excavation of Abydos. Abydos was the place that she alleged that she and Seti I had become lovers in her past life. So she was overjoyed to get the opportunity to work there. When she got to Abydos, she knew that everything she believed about her past life was true. To the astonishment of those around her, Dorothy would simply walk the site of the dig and point to a spot and say, Dig there. There is a garden there. And the dig would uncover a lost garden in the exact spot that she had pointed out. This happened numerous times during the excavation and Dorothy vowed to live out the rest of her days in Abydos. In somewhat of a final test of her abilities, the chief inspector of the Department of Antiquities took her inside Seti's temple in total darkness. This was the place where she had claimed to have been raised as a child in ancient Egypt. The chief inspector stood her in the centre of the temple and described various wall murals. Every single time, Dorothy was able to walk in the complete darkness and find the exact position of each mural in one go. 
the position and the content of Seti I's temple had never been published. Dorothy Eady had one aim in life, and that was to live, die and be buried in Abydos. She achieved that aim and died in Abydos on April the 21st, 1981, in a mud hut that she called Om Seti Hilton. James P. Allen of the American Research Centre in Cairo described her as the patron saint of Egyptology and said, I don't know of an American archaeologist in Egypt who doesn't respect her. What are we even talking about here? Like, that story has blown my mind. All that stuff that she just knew. Just knew. Like, how did she know where all that stuff was buried? What what are we actually dealing with here? Because this isn't just like a a brain injury. This is almost as if, like, she's hit her head and an ancient spirit is, like, taken over her body. No, it feels like she hit her head and unlocked something and went, oh, shit, I now remember. And that's what freaked me out about it. Because there's two ways to look at this story, right? The first way is that this woman was incredibly eccentric or very mentally unwell and had all these delusions which is scary in itself, right? Because she believed it. Yeah. She she was not trying to fool anybody. She believed it. The second option is that when she fell, she unlocked a part of her brain that remembered a past life. That's equally... A, I don't know which is scarier. Genuinely, I don't know which is scarier. I don't, I don't think you can just put this down to eccentrism, though, can you? Like, how was she so accurate about everything? I think initially, so in the beginning, I think you can, right? And so what I mean by that is if you just met this woman and she was like, oh, by the way, which it seems like she genuinely did. Like if anybody met her, she'd be like, oh, by the way, I used to be a, in a past life. I was a priestess and this is what happened to me. And it, it, I read one of the accounts that her colleagues just got used to it where they were like, okay, but they obviously respected her. Like they obviously recognized something in her because if i'm sure there's plenty of people in the world who are obsessed about things you know you're obsessed with wrestling right but that doesn't mean that you go around going i actually am a wrestler i mean you might do in your spare time i don't know (laughs) but you know what i'm saying Where, where she was like she had this obsession with ancient egypt but she also had this knowledge and she was really respected this was a not this was a woman who wasn't really educated who ended up in these great jobs and was completely respected in her field it just blow the whole thing blows my mind. It blows my mind. And I think it the the foreign accent syndrome is a is a real thing. Like that's a genuine um result of brain injury. So that could explain why she woke up speaking differently. And I think maybe maybe some of the other stuff can be explained away by like she read something that she didn't realise she'd read or she saw something or her parents were interested. There's loads of different ways you can explain it. What you can't explain is her living in Egypt and knowing where all that stuff was and like you said and going into the temple and being like oh i know exactly where that picture is in the dark it's just mind blown this i mean if you i don't even know where to start with this because i feel like it's almost and i don't want to drop this p word lightly it almost feels like proof that we are we do have past lives does it not like if we're not going down the the realms of possession not in like a demonic way, but just in in like being possessed by another spirit. That would suggest that we all have past lives waiting to be unlocked. I know, which is very alarming. Isn't that very alarming? It depends what I was doing. 
Well, yeah, it depends on what your past <laughs> life was. If it was something really cool and cushy, then I mean, probably not alarming. I feel like hers probably put her at odds with people around her, but actually hers was really cool and she knew loads of really good stuff and actually it sorted her out for the rest of her life pretty much, didn't it? Because she had always went and had jobs and then ended up living where she wanted to live. She had a really... She was completely poverty-stricken in the end of her life. She lived in literally a mud hut with uh, her dogs and her cats and a pet viper. She just sounds mad and I love her. Like, I, I, she just sounds incredible. There's loads of documentaries and stuff about her where she's interviewed. So, like, do look her up. Uh, she lived in poverty. She made her money by doing, uh, like, embroidery of various different um, Egyptian pharaohs and selling them to tourists. Sometimes she did tours of the temple and uh, she had loads of illness at the end of her life. But it, I think like her son wanted her to go live with him. Like she dis- she chose that life. She was like, no, this is where I need to be and this is where I want to be. And then when, because people were so frightened of her in the local area, nobody wanted to bury her because they were really scared of her. And she built uh, her own sarcophagus in their back garden. <laughs> wow. Well, she, I mean, she does sound really cool. And, you know, all power to her talking about Egyptian nationalism in the 30s. Like that's the right time to be talking about nationalist 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 movements from colonial states at that point so fair play to her i'm my mind is just blown by this because this is like pushing me towards believing that we've got past lives in us like in modern times and probably her contemporaries there were people who tried to discredit her and what they say is that uh, she must have seen unpublished documents and that was how she knew the location of various things and she knew the layout of the temple etc when i was reading this i was thinking i mean that's fair enough but if there were these unpublished documents why were they excavating blindly because that doesn't make any sense no that doesn't i mean there is you could you could see why they'd make that because if she's working in the department of antiquities there's every chance she may have come across something that someone else didn't notice even if that is the case it still makes her flipping incredible because that means she memorized the whole thing which in itself is quite a thing <laughs> And her her colleagues referred to her as being like intuitive. By that, I don't mean she was like a, a psychic or a medium. What they said was they would go to her and say, we have this theory about life in Egypt. What do you think? And she'd be like, yes or no. And it was it would always be right. She would, She just knew what actual day-to-day life was like. Because I'd imagine for archaeologists all the time, they discover something and go, oh, I wonder if this pot was used for this. But then in actuality, they find out, oh, no, it definitely wasn't. It was used for something completely different. And she just knew. Regardless of what you think about her, whether she had a past life, whether she was just completely eccentric, whether she had a mental illness, she was remarkable. What a fascinating woman. I just think she's incredible. I think she's absolutely incredible. Crowley's Egyptology is all based around Seti and Isis, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I genuinely don't know anything about him. I feel like it is. Not that there's any link to the two, but it's just interesting. And also, I'm very glad that I now know the phrase eating the raw turkey, which I've never heard before, but it's it's kind of cool. Makes sense though, right? Eating the raw turkey, you you just can't stop yourself and then it makes you very sick, which they would have been like, you had sex as a priestess, sorry, now we've got to publicly execute you because those are the rules. You broke them. It's interesting, that part of the story has Medusa vibes. Because we talk about Medusa as being like very evil, but actually in in the in the legend she was assaulted. But because she had had sex, it was she was uh, uh, condemned to be this monster. And I kind of feel like her story has similarities. So part of me wonders like, were there elements of it where she 
did hear things or read things and kind of appropriated them to her story. But then I think about like, you you just couldn't be that respected in your field. You just couldn't. I I feel like that is, if that is the case, it's really devious. And I feel like that kind of deviousness is eventually caught out. You couldn't go 80 odd years or however old she lived, not getting caught out on something like that. I just don't think you could. Like someone would see that you or someone would notice you looking at things or withholding things or. Especially when she was working with academics who were experts in the field as well. It's one thing if she was, if she positioned herself where other people didn't know anything about Egypt and she was saying, oh, well, I know all this stuff. And they were going, wow, because they have no Mm. context because they don't, they're not experts. She was working in the Department of Antiquities with Egyptologists from all over the world who had a deep knowledge and their whole life was dedicated to understanding Egypt. I completely agree. She would have been caught out. They would have been like, you don't know, though, do you, Dorothy? You don't know. So give it a rest. She wouldn't have got those jobs either if she didn't have a really good knowledge. She did like incredible reporting and stuff as well. Like just generally, she was brilliant at what she did with no formal education, virtually no formal education, no third level education, which was needed at the time for to be an Egyptologist. No, nothing. She just had this intuitive knowledge. And apparently a past life. So I have to ask, where are you sitting with the past life thing? Because I feel like I'm fully on board now. I don't know. That's my honest answer. I don't know because, and I'm not trying to be like really cool and, and critical and, and um, I'm a big skeptic. It's just so wild. And I, and I wonder if she was just remarkably intelligent, but also along with that intelligence came... A, a delusion where she firmly believed that this was that this was what she was or this was what she was in a past life I don't know I, I genuinely don't know I'm on board I feel like it's a thing I don't know how I feel about past life regression therapy but I feel like they must be a th- like there's too much going on in this story for it to just be eccentricism eccentricity I, as a listener if you have a theory please let us know because it's just such a cool story. And do watch documentaries about her because even if you don't believe any of the past life stuff, she was a remarkable woman to do what she did in a time where archaeology and Egyptology was a male-centric field. And she just rocked up with all this knowledge, had never been to college, you know, just from a lower middle class family. Like, amazing. What a woman. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, you can find out everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. Dan is doing mind-blown actions here beside me. You can buy your enamel pins in the same place. You can send in your own spooky story about your past life to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon if you wish. That is patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories where for $5 a month or $2 a month you get access to heaps of extra content. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.